This is 105.9 The Region, and you're listening to Discovery, the radio show for podcasters. Your content, unfiltered. This is Discovery. Welcome to Discovery. Over the past several weeks, we've been featuring podcasts from students of the radio broadcasting program at Durham College. There's been a vast range of content and topics, from where to eat, how to preserve languages, an overview of the gaming world, and much more. This week is no different. Our first podcast lives in the world of sports, with Colin Miller and Mitchell Coleman discussing the Toronto Raptors' trade moves at the deadline. We switch over to the world of music with Vinyl Talk and host Presley Overgore, who talks about the recent comeback of vinyl record collecting. Finally, the Silver Screen Seminar, a podcast that highlights the Oscar-winning movie Everything Everywhere All at Once and the milestone this means for anime. First up, an analysis of the Toronto Raptors' trades. Hello and welcome. My name's Colin Miller and I'm here with Mitchell Coleman. And today, we're going to be going over the trade deadline for the Toronto Raptors and we want to see if the Jakob Pertle trade was worth it. So let's get right into it. I'll tell you the trade and what happened on deadline day. So Jakob Pertle was acquired by the Toronto Raptors from the San Antonio Spurs in exchange for Kem Birch, a bench player, a 2023 second round pick which Toronto owned, a conditional 2024 first round pick, protected top five, top six, Toronto also owned that, And then a 2025 second round pick, Toronto also owned that as well. So, Mitch, I want to get your insight on this. What do you think about this pick? Because personally, I think it's pretty good. Siakam was out there having to rebound the basketball, play make, and score the basketball for a very long time while guarding the big man. And acquiring Jacoperto was perfect for taking some of the load off of his back, doing things that... Siakam doesn't have to do now, like rebounding the basketball, playing defense against guys like Embiid, Giannis Antetokounmpo, mm-hmm. big men that are, you know, tiring you out and uh, taking away from parts of your game. I didn't even think about that. Like, obviously, everyone thinks about like the rebounding and the defense, but you didn't really think that Pascal was literally doing everything for this team before this trade. He would have to guard the big guys like Joel Embiid, and that's a big reason why we weren't really doing well in the playoffs or anything like that. And honestly, we didn't give up much for getting Jakob Pertl. Honestly, we gave up Kem Birch, a bench player, as I said before. And then, obviously, that first-round pick is kind of really the only risky thing with how the trade uh, or with how the lottery goes and everything like that. But honestly, I'm overall really a big fan of this. But do you wish there was like something else that we did, like maybe even moving Fred or OG at the deadline? Yeah, I feel like uh, that would have been the smartest play to do. Obviously, Masai Jerry's a great president. And he definitely right. knows what he's doing, but... Our GM's a good GM as well, but I feel like we should have uh, offloaded uh, OG Ananobi. You know, he's always hurt. He plays half the season at like for the past three years. He's mm-hmm. always sitting on the bench. And uh, I feel like you can get a lot in today's NBA with a player of that caliber. 3D player who can create on his own. There's not many players like that. No, this trade, trade deadline was the seller's market. So, so honestly, I, I feel like going with what you said there and it being a selling market, I don't think they wanted to sell OG and I think they're trying to go for it. Like, honestly, I don't believe they have the team to go for it, but I think that's what Masai is trying to do. They had signed Will Barton, some depth, a veteran, like, guard, you know? Do you think they're going to be able to actually go for it or do you think they're going to go far in the playoffs here? No, I don't think they'll... They don't match up well against many... Well, with the addition of Jakob Pertl, they do match up a bit better now, mm-hmm. but they don't have the lineups that some of the better teams in the East this year do. And I feel like the Raptors at best will be a second round exit. Yeah. If we're lucky. That's fair. 
Yeah, some of those uh, East teams are stacked. You know, you got the Boston Celtics, you got Philly, obviously. Milwaukee Bucks, Milwaukee on a 12 game winning streak. Uh, Do you got the Suns in there too? Yeah, I'd say the Suns are up there if KD can, you know, figure it out and stay healthy. Yeah, so well, obviously before the trade deadline, they weren't doing too hot. They're only 26 and 30. But then after the trade deadline, they've kind of turned around, but obviously they're going to need to be way better. They were only 6 and 5 since the trade deadline. I'm thinking we're definitely going to need to be a lot better. We're right on the bubble line of being able to play in the play-in tournament. So yeah, I feel I feel the guy's got to show up and be consistent. Fred Van Leet is going to need to go out there and give you 20 points a night, and mm-hmm. Siakam's going to need to go out there deal with the double teams that are being thrown at him left and right and uh, play make. As you said before, Pirtle's defense is such a huge, a huge, huge upside. Be able to uh, guard guys like Embiid and everything like that another thing with Pirtle is he's so he's such a threat off the screen and roll you can mm-hmm. set screens for lots of players that are carrying the ball and roll off of it and create opportunities doing that as well which opens up lots of court space and uh, lots of open open shots so earlier you were saying about how you're thinking maybe we should have offlifted Fred or OG where do you think we should have given them to like what could we have possibly gotten in return like what would you have wanted for those guys? Well, the Nets were pretty active this uh, trade deadline, and they're sitting in a fourth seed. Mm-hmm. I feel like they would have been looking to buy, and they had some big names, Kyrie, KD. I feel like we could have had a package if we wanted to go for it still. Mm-hmm. Or we could have looked a different way and went with Phoenix. And look what Phoenix gave up for uh, Kevin Durant. They gave up all their depth players, young, young developing stars. Yeah. And Mikel Bridges and Cam Johnson. So I feel like we could have gotten it done with a few teams that were looking to add a few pieces. Today's NBA, you can get three to four first round draft picks for a player of OG's caliber. <laughs> no, for sure. And and young pieces, but I guess uh Masai Ujiri wanted to hold on and he's in the front office for a reason, right? We do love Masai, but I'm with you. I think I would have liked to see Fred or Siak or not Siakam, but OG leave because we also have Gary coming off the bench. You know, Gary Trent is a very well starting caliber or caliber player. That's now, as I've been looking, is only getting roughly 22 minutes a night. I think he should have the ball in his hands a lot more. But overall, they did do very well on the actual trade deadline day. But once again, do you believe that they're going to have enough to actually make a playoff push? Because that's what they were looking at. If they weren't looking at a playoff push, they would have dismantled the team and started rebuilding. But I think they really want to try to go for it. Yeah, I think they could uh, maybe win one round, maybe a second round. It's tough in the NBA nowadays. Everyone is so good. Every team is amazing. Yeah, if we run into a, a hot Celtics team, I don't know how we're shutting down one of the best defensive guards in the NBA and Marcus Smart. Mm-hmm. They have uh, Jason Tatum. One of the best offensive guys, yeah. Yeah, scoring 30-plus points a night. Jalen Brown, great second scorer. You can put up 20-plus a night. You got Robert Williams, great defensive center. And then their bench. Like, their bench, compared to our benches, they're, Mm -hmm. like, they're deep. They got Derek White. They got... Malcolm Brogdon. Yeah, that that's crazy. They got Brogdon coming off the bench. And Derek White, too. Derek White. He's been popping off this season. Overall, though... I do feel like this trade was worth it. Um, obviously, getting a center in this day and age of the NBA is very big. And having one that's as versatile as Pirtle is is quite an advantage. And as I keep reiterating, we did not give up that much to actually get him. And 
with the addition, I do believe, yes, Siakam is going to have a lot easier of a workload. And same thing with Fred Van Vliet and OG. You know, they don't have to uh, really be hounding on the defensive end as much as they have been in recent years. So how do you feel? Do you feel it was worth it? Do you feel the trade was worth it? Yeah, I feel like the trade was, it made sense. You know, we gave up very little for what we got in return. I'm just not too happy that we didn't move one of those other big names like like OG. So Gary Trent could pop into the starting lineup and we could, uh, you know, let Scotty do a little bit more of his thing. But something to uh, take a look at, though, is they have a very, very tough end of the season. So obviously they're on the borderline right now of making it into the play and like tournament to uh, get into the playoffs. But to look at the end of the regular season for them, they're going to have to play the Celtics two more times. They're going to have to play the Bucks two more times. And then they're going to have to play the Heat and the 76ers one more time. And that's all within the last seven games of the season. So they do have a very tough end of the season. And they're definitely going to need to turn it on to uh, face those. Yeah, let's hope those teams have already clinched by that time and are mm-hmm. uh, resting their big stars. No, I agree. That's really going to be the telltale task for our team. If we can get through those games and really show those teams at the top of the East that we mean business. Um, I think we're going to be looking good going into playoffs. And we, as I've said before, we're a very dangerous first team to play in that first round and in the play-in tournament. Like, you don't want to play the Toronto Raptors because of their defense. You can talk to the Sixers about that last year. Yeah, exactly. All right, well, in my mind, Mitch, obviously, I'd say it was worth it. You say it was worth it. I think we can definitely say, overall, it was worth it. We want to thank you all for watching, and we also hope you have an amazing rest of your day. Thank you. See you guys. Switching now from sports to music with Vinyl Talk. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Vinyl Talk, a podcast about vinyl records. I'm your host, Presley Overgore, and I've been collecting vinyl since my early teenage years and continue to collect them into my 20s. You might have been under the assumption that vinyl records aren't popular anymore. However, in recent years, vinyl has taken back popularity, especially amongst younger generations. Social media has played a key part in the vinyl resurgence, with many collectors posting their collections on platforms such as Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. I had the pleasure to sit down and chat with Abigail DeVoe, a vinyl collector who showcases her love and passion for vinyl on YouTube and Instagram. We had a great conversation about vinyl resurgence, things that she wished she knew when she first started collecting, and where the future of vinyl is heading. I hope you enjoy. Abby, thanks so much for joining me on the first episode of Vinyl Talk. Thank you so much for having me. So let's just get right into it. Why do you think vinyl collecting has become so mainstream recently? I think the vinyl boom that sort of, I think, started in the mid-2010s, it had this kind of cool kid effect. I remember seeing it on Tumblr and on Instagram when I was a wee teenager. People around me were doing it and seemed to be having fun with it. So why not? Do you think people still do that today? Vinyl is a lot more out there now, even than it was when I started collecting five years ago. 
I also started collecting vinyl around the same time as you, Abby, so I've also seen the popularity of vinyl grow. And now you see people buying albums because they heard one song from Stranger Things, for example, with Kate Bush. Yeah, I didn't even think about nostalgia media, like, say, Stranger Things, or just release the music for it today series coming out tomorrow, Daisy Jones and the Six. I think that's going to be another really popular sort of big pop culture vinyl moment. If I'm going to make an assumption here, I think that the soundtrack for Daisy Jones and the Six, when released on vinyl, of course, will have the same positive reception that the 20th anniversary box set of Almost Famous had. Pop culture has definitely helped with the vinyl boom, I think, and now there are people who are just starting off their record collections. Which leads me to this. What are some of the most important things that you've learned, Abby, over the years as a vinyl collector? Oh, that's a big reason why I started collecting vinyl actually was seeing the vinyl community on YouTube. And there were, I think, one or two people my age who I was watching. And I kind of picked up some things from them and the community as a whole. Let's see. I learned how to take care of vinyl. I had no idea what I was doing or how to handle vinyl until I saw other people doing it. It was very much a learn by example sort of thing. Um, and I've also learned that sometimes you might feel this too, looking for more obscure stuff that you really want in your collection. Sometimes the chase is half the fun. Nothing beats getting deep into a value bin and pulling out an album that you've been forever looking for. Yeah, yeah. I've been on some legendary looks for my White Whale albums. I have to ask though, what has been the recent white whale find for you? Let's see. Uh, really recently, I've been looking for more, I guess, runs of Miracle Musical Hawaii Part 2. Those albums that the album resells for thousands of dollars and it's repressed very few and far between. Actually, I have something right here that was kind of a search Ooh. that I went on for a while. I mc5 high time their of last course, album of course i was looking for this for months and only just found it i've had the same thing with ab filmer east by the almond brothers yeah i remember that in all honesty though my recent white whale find has been another almond brothers album eat a peach i nearly died when i saw that in mint condition in a value bin yeah, I got my copy of Eat a Peach with a lot of my other albums would have been four years ago at this point. It's falling apart. I really like how this has become us talking about Eat a Peach. Isn't that the joy of vinyl collecting, though? I know. It's something you can own yourself. You can hold in your hand. Um, you can interact with it. That's something you can't do with streaming. Exactly. A streaming service song in your hands. You can't open it up and look at the art. You can't appreciate all of the work the artists and their teams put into putting that packaging together, how it looks, how it feels to own. Vinyl are pieces of art, and I've always said that, and it's also what first stood out to me about the format as well. It's something that I can hold. Maybe it's it's definitely not as portable as I want, but it's still pretty. It's it's not as portable for sure, like you said, but it is tangible. And maybe that's the optimist in me, hoping that others value that. But I really feel that others do if vinyl is taking off the way it is. Knowing that the vinyl community on social media is taking off, where do you think that the future of vinyl collecting is heading? I am cautiously optimistic about the future of collecting. 
Um, for one, I'm really happy vinyl is becoming more available. You can go to a Target or a Walmart and you can find some great stuff. I couldn't really do that when I started collecting. That was a lot more sparse. And I love that the hobby has been opened up to so many more people who otherwise wouldn't be collecting. I suppose you also have to consider the rise in vinyl pricing as well, right? Vinyl collecting is a little less accessible. I've noticed the price of albums slowly climbing up since I started collecting about five years ago. Me too, though. I remember buying Tommy by The Who for $10, and now it's $30 at the same record store. But despite the prices getting higher, what is some of the advice that you'd give to someone who is just starting out their vinyl collection? My number one piece of advice that I wish I had when I started collecting was collect what you listen to. All right? Don't listen to what other collectors or must-have lists on the internet say is a must-have album. Because if you end up listening to it, buying it, listening to it, and it's not your thing, then you just have it and it's taking up space. Um, If you collect what you actually listen to, you'll want to play it more. Um, Collecting will become a more enjoyable hobby as opposed to something that can be daunting. Abby, thank you once again for joining me today here on Vinyl Talk. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I didn't know what to expect going into this. So to have it really be a casual conversation about something that we're so passionate about, we've been able to touch on things that I was hoping we'd have the time to touch on. And having sort of a natural flowing conversation, we were able to get there. So thank you so much for having such a relaxed environment for this. It really does make a difference. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Vinyl Talk with Presley Overgore. If you'd like to connect with me on social media, you can find me on Twitter at Presley Overgore and on Instagram at PresleyPearl underscore. That's it for me today. Now go spin your favorite album on your turntable. Here is Silver Screen Seminar. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Silver Screen Seminar, or the SSS podcast, where we go back and forth about movies, film news, actors and actresses, and I'm your host of this podcast, Eric Serrano, and my co-host is none other than one of my good friends. Jonathan Moaka. Yes, sir. How you doing today, man? I'm good. Yourself? I'm good. Good. Feeling good. Thank you. So, now for this specific episode... I wanted to get it into Asian cinema. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quite the interesting <laughs> topic. I mean, you know more than like a year ago. A lot more than a year ago. Uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's this movie starring an Asian family that came out, I think, almost a year ago today that made big waves uh, about a week ago at a certain award-winning event. But... I kind of want to take a look back at just some of the highlights of Asian cinema, just how we got here, because I feel like that's important. Okay. So I actually have another friend named John, shout out John, uh, who actually goes to York University for film production, uh, film school. 
And when we got to know each other, he was telling me about what he was learning. And one of the first notable figures that was taught to him at film school was one of the first big Asian directors, Japanese director Kiris Kurosawa, who did movies like Seven Samurai, Yojimbo, Sanjiro. Uh, this was back in like black and white days, 1950s. But he was definitely someone who popularized samurai cinema. One other big Asian figure in cinema, from Chinese descent though, popularized martial arts cinema. And you know what? You cannot think about martial arts cinema without knowing the name Bruce Lee. Yeah, it's honestly... I think that's what really got me into Asian cinema to begin with, because that was one of the first films you ever showed me. It was, what was the first one? It was called Fist of Fury. Fist of Fury, yes. Yeah, that was like his second big movie. Mm -hmm. Though the story, in my opinion, was alright, but I think it was good for its time. The fight scenes were immaculate, the martial arts we saw in that movie. I mean, I enjoyed it overall. I mean, when we look at today's cinema, you'll see fight scenes, but they do it a very specific way where maybe they'll change the lighting so it's like dark silhouettes to kind of like trick you. Or they'll use certain camera angles to zoom in, editing to just make fights look so like quick and flashy. But back then, with martial arts cinema, back when Jackie Chan was making waves, Bruce Lee was making waves. They actually hit each other, they actually got hurt. That isn't a knock to any of the stuntmen today, it's just times were different. Times were different, yeah, you're right. <laughs> I mean, things were different back then. If they asked you to jump off some heights for money, you'd actually jump off, and they'd hope you'd know how to land. And if you actually get hit, you keep going. Like, if you don't get, like, the single hit right, this single beat, and the choreography, they'd redo it. So that was a big thing with martial arts and just stunt choreography back then. And something like that would cut into the budget a lot right now. But back then they didn't care as long as the shot was perfect no matter how many times it took. And you know what, I gotta respect that. These guys were the first to get the West to acknowledge Asian cinema and Asians in cinema. And I can't thank them enough for that. Of course, Asian cinema has a lot more to offer than just martial arts. We got into like dramas, thriller, crime. We're not just one genre. It's not a stereotype anymore. And Bong Joon-ho's Parasite in 2019 definitely proved our range and proved that Asia has a lot more to offer. Did you know how many Oscars Parasite won a couple years back? Four Oscars. Yeah, four. And usually international movies don't get a lot of praise like this. Like before, it was always just acknowledged in the best international film category and then before international films were only ever acknowledged in the international film category and then they'd get their oscar and be done with the rest of the show they weren't nominated for best picture or best screenplay it was just international film and that's it and i mean parasite got best international film that year it won three of the biggest oscars out there against what the West had to offer, and it was a great year, by the way. Parasite also won Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Picture. And we've had, like, a couple other reps the year after, like, Korean actress Yo Jong-yoon won Best Supporting Actress for Minari, and coming into this year's Oscars that aired last week, we hit a big winner, a big historical winner. 
with everything everywhere all at once. Which I watch with you in your basement, right? You made Janae Richard. Yes. Yeah. Quite quite the moment. Quite interesting. Quite the moment. Yeah, that's right. And you know there there isn't exactly one specific genre to explain it because it could be a drama, it could be a comedy, it is an action. Sci-fi. Sci-fi too. But it's there's no one way of explaining it everything has everything i mean that's why it's the title of the movie exactly and you know everything got everything last week at the oscars you know how many oscars they won i'm gonna take a crack in the woods and say four (laughs) (laughs) no they they beat it actually they got seven oscars seven oscars yeah no that's actually crazy what it was crazy you know what i was i was almost in tears especially with Kei Kwan. I know I loved his performance. I don't know about you. No, I found his performance to be one of the best out of the main three mm-hmm. out of the three actors. Yeah, the first fight he had was yes, you was. know, it was so much fun. And I found that his diversity in his role where he could switch from different type of people, it wasn't that he was just one character out throughout throughout the entire movie. He was multiple and you couldn't have tell that when you first saw the first 10 minutes. You know, and I, I read a bit uh, into him after watching the movie, how this was like his big comeback here. After 20 years of not having a big role, he, he was best known as a kid back when Indiana Jones 2 was out. Oh, I remember seeing that. Yeah, and the Goonies. But that was when he was like a little infant, and now we get to see him all grown up, mm-hmm. you know, back at it. He was in tears. I was in tears. I saw him hugging Harrison Ford, and I was like, ooh, ooh, that moved me, man. I just, you gotta love a comeback story. Exactly. It really shows that you cannot give up at any point if you really desire something, work hard until you achieve it. And, and it was so inspirational. Michelle Yeoh had a big significant win last week too, where she was the first Asian woman to win Best Actress at the Oscars. That's quite the accomplishment. Yeah, and she's been in big movies. I can't remember what James Bond movie she's been in, but she's also been in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. She's also been in Super Cop with Jackie Chan, but it's been a long time coming for her as well. And just to have that first stepping stone into the Oscars, I found that beautiful as well. She deserved every single bit of that award. Congrats to her. Mm -hmm. But I will say that is all the time we have today. And thank you so much for joining me, John. And if you haven't watched Everything Everywhere All at Once, you can watch it on Amazon Prime Video, or you could rent it on YouTube, Google Play, Movies and TV, or Apple TV. Thank you so much for joining Silver Screen Seminar, and we hope to see you at the theaters. That's all for this week. We hope you enjoyed. This was Discovery. Those were podcasts from students at Durham College. I'm your host, Cal Steiger. We'll see you next week. Discovery, the radio show for podcasters, exclusive to 105.9 The Region. Expand your audience and extend your reach. Send us your podcast, info at 1059theregion.com.